Those were not real stars above Kabul last evening. The Taliban fighters were shooting into the night sky to celebrate America's departure. Here now, a story of Afghanistan and true stars. Chapter 1, Najma, Golestan village, Kunduz province, northern Afghanistan, October 2001. The day begins like every day in the Kunduz hills, following the rhythms of the sun and moon, before first light, even before the first stars begin to fade. My mother tugs at my quilt. Get up, sleepy one, she says. It's time to light the fire. I feel as if I've just gone to sleep. How can it be time to begin another day so soon after the last one has ended? Marijan leans then over my older brother, Noor. To him, she says, get up, sleepy one. It's time to get water so that I can make tea. Noor grumbles and the quilt rustles as he turns over, but Marajan does what she always does when we try to ignore her. She yanks the quilt up from the bottom and tickles his bare feet with a piece of straw. The quilt makes a popping sound as Noor kicks out, but Marajan is quick to get out of the way, despite her belly, which is enormous with my unborn brother. I'm sure it's a brother, because my mother has been well and happy throughout her pregnancy. I have named my unborn brother Habib, which means beloved friend. I know Habib will be my friend, unlike Noor, who teases me mercilessly. Before Noor goes out the door, he picks up the nearly empty water tin and flicks a few drops into my face. It's icy and chases away any thought I might have of sleeping a few minutes longer. If the rooster is up, so must the hen be up, he says, and his hand sloshes again in the water. Noor, stop playing, Marajan says. Najma, get up. She tugs at my quilt again. After you fetch firewood, you must feed this bookray, she says, motioning to the brand-new baby goat that stands on quivering stick-like legs near the head of the cot where I sleep. She was born yesterday, and her mother won't feed her. I hold out my hand to the kid who nuzzles the underside of my fingers, butting my palm with her nose. Then I throw back the quilt and reach for my shawl. The autumn morning air is chilly, and I savor the cool, knowing how hot it will be before noon. Babajan is already milking the goats, and when he gets back, he'll want his breakfast, says Marajan, folding my quilt so that I can't change my mind and crawl back under its warmth. At the thought of the milk my father will bring, my stomach grumbles. Outside, Noor finds the pole and ties the ghee tins to either end of it with goat sinew. He hoists it to his shoulder and waits for me to walk with him to where the path leads down the hill to Baba Darya, the little stream at the bottom. Baba means old man as well as father. We call it Old Man River, because its thin ribbons twist together like the wisps of an elder's beard. I saw leopard's pug marks in the dust here last night, Noor says. Just as we reach the fork in the path that will take me to the woodpile and Noor to the stream, I hesitate where the two paths split. Noor, Marajan says, her voice low with warning, knowing Noor very well. She has stepped outside the door to listen. Stop trying to scare her. Najma, you know there are no leopards here. Now hurry, you two. 
Still, I hesitate. Really, Noor whispers, they were this big. He holds his fist up so I can see it in the creeping light of the sunrise. It must be a very large leopard. Then he turns his back and walks, humming down the hill, the tins bouncing from the ends of the pole across his shoulder. My heart hammers and I want to run back to the house, but I know Marijan will be angry. I turn and run as fast as I can all the way to the wood pile. There, I spread my shawl on the ground and pile several armloads of wood on top. I feel a tingling along my spine the whole time. I think I see yellow eyes gleaming in the dark to the side of the wood pile. I'm sure I hear a low growl. Nor was only teasing, I mutter under my breath. Nor was only teasing. But I really am convinced a large animal with long pointed teeth is waiting to pounce on me. I'm terribly afraid of leopards, although I have never seen one in my life. During the hot season, when the sun burns the grass to the roots, we take the flock higher into the hills so far up that eventually it is too far to come back and we sleep there under the stars at night. Babajan taught us to find Al-Kutib, the star that never moves, at the end of the handle of the water ladle. He told us that Al-Kutib means hub, like the hub of a wheel and the other stars move around it. He knelt by my side and told me to make a fist and then to point the second knuckle at the star. As long as you know the stars, you will never be lost, he said. The Quran says that Allah gave us the stars to be our guides. Everything depends on the stars. From them you can tell time and distance and you can find your way home. He told us many stories and showed us the shapes of animals and warriors and mythical beasts among the stars. This is the first time I've gone with the flock alone walking up the hill. I am still afraid, but with the sun shining, I find it easier to believe there are no leopards in our hills. Words from Chapter 1 of Under the Persimmon Tree. Sadly, Najma will soon encounter the real leopards in the hills, the Taliban. Under the Persimmon Tree is an award-winning novel for readers of all ages by Suzanne Fisher Staples. Suzanne grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, writing, keeping journals as a child and reading everything she could get her hands on. After college, she worked at writing and editing jobs and was lucky enough to end up in Hong Kong working for United Press International, eventually as bureau chief for UPI in New Delhi. She lived and worked in Asia for about 10 years before returning to work part-time at the Washington Post, editing news from Asia. In 1985, she returned to Asia to work on a literacy project in the border between Pakistan and India. Those stories were the basis for her two novels, Shabanu, Daughter of the Wind, and its sequel, Haveli. A third book in the series was published in 2009, The House of Jinn. Suzanne often lectures on literacy, women in Islam, her books, and the value of fiction. 
She was planner of the program for an unusual and innovative literature conference called The Gathering at Keystone, Keystone College here in northeastern Pennsylvania, sorely missed. With the news unfolding in Afghanistan, we had a chance to speak by phone with Suzanne Fisher-Staples about her work and experiences in Afghanistan and the writing she's done inspired by her years in Asia. I had been working in Hong Kong for the Asia division of United Press International, which no longer exists. But they assigned me in 19... Early 1979 to the South Asia Bureau, which was headquartered in New Delhi, India. And the countries that I covered from there were India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Afghanistan, and the Maldives. When you talk about covering, that's a wide territory and it's not like being able to get around easily. How were you able to report and discover what stories needed to be told in all of that? Well, it was from different sources. The ruling party in Afghanistan at the time was actually the Communist Party, and they had a news service that was broadcast throughout the region in South Asia. A lot of people consider Afghanistan to be the Middle East. It is just sort of the farthest western part of South Asia, which includes India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and the Maldives, the the islands off the southern coast of India. So I flew from place to place. We also had informants. There was an Afghan man living in India who had been thrown out of Afghanistan at one point. I think he had been a a university professor before he was a journalist. He had a disagreement with the government, and they sent him outside of the country to live in India. And he became a sort of... Uh, an informant for a lot of a lot of Western journalists who lived in in New Delhi and covered the same area that I did. You know, it was easy to tell when there was something going on in Afghanistan because the language on their news agency got very stilted, and uh, they were reporting a lot of air traffic around the the northern border of Afghanistan the southernmost border of the Soviet Socialist Republics. So that alerted us to the fact that the Russians were massing there to do a two-pronged approach to occupy Afghanistan by air, uh, airlifting troops into Kabul and uh, floating equipment across the river on the border. And then we waited for our our friend, uh, who probably shouldn't be named, I don't even know where he is now, to uh, inform us what exactly was going on. And he reported that there were flights taking off from from Kabul every 10 minutes or so with troops coming into Afghanistan. So that was how we found out that the Soviet Union was, was about to occupy Afghanistan. Suzanne, was that the same airfield that you used when you were going into Kabul and that we see and hear all about in this evacuation effort? Yes, yes. And I took the very first photograph of Russian soldiers marching across the tarmac 
the Russians had been saying that the Afghans were not invaded by the Soviet Union, that these were their, their Islamic brethren from the Islamic states that bordered Afghanistan that were part of the Soviet Union. And here is this beautiful young blonde man carrying a Christmas tree over his shoulder across the tarmac in the airport at Kabul. So, I mean, from the very beginning, they had, I think, probably, if the Russians didn't teach it to them, at least reinforced the fact that it was okay to play fast and loose with the truth. You took that picture? I took that picture. In those days, how did you get it back and get it circulated? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, it was very funny. They had stopped flights going in and out of the airport, and they incarcerated the foreign press in the airport. And I was the only woman, uh, I think, among the journalists on the plane, and I had worn cowboy boots because I was hoping not to be mistaken for a Russian, only to find out, of course, that the Russians were wearing cowboy boots also, not to be mistaken as Russians. (laughs) But when they, they boarded the plane as it pulled into the tarmac, They knew that it was full of journalists, and so the man from military intelligence, who I recognized was part of the Afghan army, came down the aisle and made everyone open their cameras and unspool the film. We didn't have digital cameras in those days, but I was lucky. I had just finished a roll of film that I took as the plane was taxiing in, and and it was in my cowboy boot along with my notes that I took. And so when we were in the airport, I just wrote up the notes, cleaned them up a little bit, and wrote the first story out of out of Kabul and set it with a, an Indian couple who were traveling on the airplane going out to London. The man came into the ladies' room, and of course it scared me half to death, but he said, I'm, I just want to say I'm going into London. Can I carry anything for you? And I quickly gave him the film and my notes and the address of the UPI Bureau in London, and that was how the first photographs got out. Of the Russian invasion of Kabul. Right, yeah. There were few enough of us that we all had firsts of one kind or another, and that was my first. (laughs) How long did you stay in the region covering that whole turf? Well, I had been into Afghanistan many times before the Soviet occupation. My first trip in was when I very first came to South Asia in early 1979, when there was already a communist government in control, actually had been installed pretty much by the Soviet Union. And it was right after the American ambassador, whose name was Adolf Dubbs, had been killed in the crossfire. He had been kidnapped and then got caught in a crossfire between two factions of the Communist Party. There wasn't, at that time, a Taliban that bothered people who, women who wanted to work, for example, or start businesses. And so it was a very free atmosphere when I first went there. It was just a beautiful, welcoming country, and the people were, were happy and cheerful because their lives were relatively trouble-free as far as warfare is concerned, whereas they have been under siege ever since the Soviets occupied Afghanistan on Christmas Eve of 1979. But in those days, you could sip wine on the sidewalks of Kabul. I mean, they're world famous for the grapes and the melons and 
apples and all kinds of fruit from Afghanistan and had a terrific fruit growing industry. And you could even go into, uh, this was very popular with people, men's groups who came over from the Middle East to, to have some good food. And they would gather in these salons where a man would come in with a plate full of coals and a fan, and they would fan the smoke at you. And that was hashish. You you pay him a couple of Afghanis, which is the coin. That's not really the term for the people of Afghanistan are called Afghans, but the coin, the currency, are Afghanis. But it was a very free and open society at, at that point. And they smuggled clothes from Europe. The women were very fashionably dressed. There was even a salon by Sassoon in the city of Kabul, so you'd see these absolutely gorgeous Afghan women with their dark eyes and dark skin with these very short geometrical hairstyles that were the Sassoon trademark. So there was a lot going on in Afghanistan. The shopping was phenomenal, all kinds of crafts, uh, needlework. They did beautiful needlework. And, of course, rugs. And they make rugs for every everyday living, every room in their house generally has a dirt floor covered with with rugs, people of all income groups. It was a really great tourist attraction also, Afghanistan was in those days. And the people were just so lovely. I mean, one of the greatest tenets of Islam is hospitality, that if someone puts their welfare in your hands, and that is what you're considered to to be doing when you accept an invitation to come into someone's home. They assume responsibility for your very life, and they do. I was a woman traveling on my own, and people always said to me, aren't you afraid to travel by yourself? But the people, I either hired them from the city as a driver to drive me into an area that I wanted to see, and uh, most of the hotels had offices in them. And the driver would take charge of your life. I mean, one time very early on after the Soviet invasion, they had guards out on the street with shoot-to-kill orders. And my car had been late finding me to bring me back to my hotel. And this young man just leapt out of the stand of bushes at the side of the road and aimed his gun in the front of the car. And the taxi driver said, you know, this is just a lady who's visiting from America, and she's going back to her hotel. It's my fault that she's late, and I can't bring dishonor on myself and my people by having her harmed in any way. So I really believed that people would put their lives in danger to keep me safe, and, and things like that happened in various different circumstances in the many years that I covered that area, both as a news reporter and then later as a literacy worker. Suzanne, at some point, you must have said to yourself, these are experiences that I've had, these are people I've met and respect and care about, and you are a writer, not just a reporter, a journalist, but you are a creative writer as well. At what point did you feel like you might be able to set a story in and around Afghanistan? Well, um, at the time when I left, I mean, really, the warfare has been extraordinary since the Soviets went in Christmas Eve of 1979, 
and they no person alive in Afghanistan, anybody who was born after that, has ever known peace until relatively recently when the Americans have been there. The cities have been pretty much quiet. It was really extraordinary to have been there at a time when they were not at war. So I didn't want it to be during wartime that I wrote the story, just because I wanted to clear my head of it. I mean, for many, many years, it was hard to tell who the enemy was. Um, that was the time when I when I wrote uh, Under the Persimmon Tree. I can't remember what, what the publication date was. I think it was maybe 1996 or 1998, before 2001. But I actually am now working on a memoir about my time in that part of the world. And it's it's funny, you know, I have boxes and boxes of my reporter's notebooks down in our basement from my years in, in all of those places. And whenever I write about them, I think I need them. My husband brought them upstairs for me when I was writing under the persimmon tree. And I don't think I ever opened a single one. It was just very fresh in my mind. And the same with my books about Pakistan. And there's just something about uh, Americans fearing the unknown that, that always ends up with our, our feeling that they're more threatening than they actually are. But in fact, I found that their sense of humor was very much the same as ours. You know, if, there, if there's a person who's a bad actor being a bully out in the street somewhere... And he runs into trouble himself. Everybody has a good laugh over it. It's, you know, the same kind of thing that, that we laugh about in this country. And uh, people play tricks on each other, and uh, they have a wonderful sense of play and music and rhythm and dancing. And it's just a beautiful—it's not just one culture. It's many cultures because there are so many tribes living there. But I love the drum music and the the piping and the dancing to that kind of music. It's just so spectacular. You chose to make a young Afghan girl and an American woman, Elaine, who takes the name Nusrat, and you've put them at the center of the story and explore how their lives come together. I started to say before that, you know, I felt safe being a woman because they have this strong tendency to protect people who are visiting, no matter whether you're man or woman. But because I was a woman, I got to sit with the women, but I also got to sit with the men because I was a newspaper reporter. And the women had the most interesting lives of all the people in Afghanistan. They were the ones who told the stories about the men and the, and the situations they got themselves into. So being with the women was was really key to being able to write the stories that I wrote about that part of the world, especially in Afghanistan. I didn't always have an interpreter with me, but when I did, it was just wonderful because the women could be bawdy. And of course, you think of women in that part of the world who wear the hijab as being pure and innocent. And uh, I mean, you're supposed to because the men force them to, to give that impression but they love to tell body stories about about the men in their community. And uh, we had a great time with the women. And the men were all about business and, you know, money, changing hands and that kind of thing. But the women would tell you about personalities and people's faults and funny things that happened. And, uh, you know, so 
it was just a huge advantage to be a woman to get to sit with both the men and the women. We meet a number of characters. Did they come to you full-blown, or did they introduce themselves to you when you got to know them as you were writing? Do you remember how that went? Well, some of them were based on people that I knew, because I knew mostly families. Najma is a character in the story. We meet Najma right away, and her name means star. Is that something that emerged from your understanding of the culture or cultures about the sense of the world on a cosmic level, the day, the night, you suggest the ruling of the sun and the moon in terms of the agriculture? Right, yes, absolutely. And, you know, they used natural landmarks. They didn't really have much else out in the desert where they lived. These people were semi-nomads. They lived down in the desert in the wintertime when the snow was deep up in the mountains to the west of where the, the desert that I spent most of my time in was deep in snow, and so their animals couldn't graze up there in the, in the wintertime. So they'd come down in the summer times to the plains, and, you know, everything was guided by the seasons. The men went to war in the, in the summertime because you couldn't even really farm unless you had land. You had to, you know, make money through selling things or doing something else. And so men generally put off warfare from winter when the snow was too deep to the summertime when they, when they couldn't farm or do anything else. The, the seasons really ruled everything. You have a wonderful record in terms of writing high-quality books for a younger audience, not necessarily adults. Who is this book for? You know, my books have sold as young adult novels, but I think I probably have as many adult readers as I have young adult readers, and I feel very fortunate. And there there were marketing reasons why evidently young adult books were selling better when I was writing them for young adults. But I think I'm just going to write it and let it lie where it falls. You know, I'm not really uh, thinking about my audience. I, I didn't very much think about my audience, and it caused me to have to edit quite a bit when I was working and realized that something was beyond the ken of, of a young younger character. And I have done some writing for adults a book that I, I haven't finished yet, but I, I'd like to finish it, that is for adults actually set partly in Afghanistan. And I just feel a much greater sense of freedom not having to think about who, who I'm writing for. I would think Under the Persimmon Tree would be a wonderful book for people to read now, not to learn lessons or anything, but the characters are really complex, and there's a sense of the coming together of cultures, of course, and the threats and so forth. I remember right off the bat, you have the black Dotsons described, the black Dotson trucks of the Taliban, so we meet these people. That's true. Well, I mean, they were very easy to spot, and they liked being easy to spot. They wanted people to be afraid of them. That was how they ruled. What you do so well, Suzanne, is to root this story in historical realities, and yet you draw us in with compelling characters and quests. And so we learn about Afghans, the people, yes, but about all of us in a way. You know, I always have in mind when I'm writing books like that, Erica, that I just want people to read them so badly so that they don't misjudge people, so that we have a better chance of understanding who people are and not 
to be afraid of them and to want to act violently toward them or to support a war against them. It's always my hope that that will happen. Writer Suzanne Fisher Staples speaking with us about her time in Afghanistan and Pakistan and reporting for United Press International. She is the author of at least seven books, Shabanu, Havili, The House of Jinn, Shiva's Fire, and we heard most about Under the Persimmon Tree. For more information about Suzanne, you can check her website. It's Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, no C, so F-I-S-H-E-R, Staples, S-T-A-P-L-E-S, Suzanne Fisher Staples.com. She is an award winner. She has received so many awards in different contexts for her writing, and we can't wait until her memoir comes into print.